you know, when when you were younger and you get into this game and you think, oh man, there's there's an aftermarket part that's certainly better than the factory <laughs> part, right? Yeah. And then the the longer you do this, the more you, the more you realize often the factory part is better than the aftermarket part. On this episode of Tuned In, we've got Tony Palo joining us from Texas and Tony is the owner of T1 Race. He's also involved with the Injected Dynamics brand along with his business partner Paul Yore. And Tony is no stranger to drag racing, particularly he has been pretty deeply involved in the import drag racing world for uh, quite some time now and I remember following some of Tony's escapades, particularly in his original front wheel drive Integra back when I was first getting involved in the tuning industry as well. These days Tony's shop has grown significantly as we'll find and he's also moved from Honda's into the R35 GTR platform. More recently he's also moved out into the Audi R8 and Lamborghini Huracan markets as well. Uh, particularly with that R35 platform we're starting to see huge power numbers out of these cars. Well maybe not just recently they've been making silly numbers for a fair while and cars deeply into the six second vicinity on the quarter mile well over 200 plus mile an hour when we're looking at half mile racing as well and of course when it comes to a factory 3.8 litre v6 there's a lot that goes into first of all making two and a half thousand plus horsepower and let alone with some reliability as well as also managing that and getting it to the racetrack particularly when you've got a complex sophisticated six speed dual clutch transmission that you also need to deal with so as we go through the interview with Tony we'll find out a little bit about what makes his cars tick, what he's found over his time developing that platform and where he sees the future of the R35 platform. Before we get into that though I just wanted to talk about a topic which actually came up very briefly in our conversation with uh, Tony today and uh, this was a Instagram that I put up recently. Uh, it's a photo of a very small drive-by wire throttle body that is on the intercooler charge piping. Uh, this one was actually from World Time Attack and it's on a Mitsubishi Evo Time Attack car. Uh, we've also seen these used on drag racing applications and uh, there's a couple of reasons why this is used. This actually replaces the conventional blower valve or bypass valve that's used to vent excess compressed air when the driver lifts off the throttle. Uh, but the other aspect with this particularly we see in uh, engines that are small capacity with large turbochargers and this is what Tony refers to as we go through the podcast we can get into a situation where the turbocharger can run into surge and essentially for want of a better term uh, that surge is happening where we push the compressor to a point where it's creating unstable airflow liken this to basically putting out more airflow than the engine can consume and it's very violent it can actually also damage the turbocharger so it's something to stay away from now with uh, drag engines that are really highly tuned and pushing huge boost pressure generally when we are very high in the RPM where the efficiency of the engine is high it will consume all of that air and of course makes lots of power which is great what we can find however is if for example the car gets a little bit loose as it goes down the strip maybe the driver has to short shift or back off the throttle uh, what that can result in particularly with the short shift the engine will drop lower in the RPM where its volumetric efficiency isn't as great and this is 
is what can drive that turbocharger into surge. Uh, so using some careful, carefully planned strategies in the ECU, it's possible to use the drive-by-wire throttle body not just as an electronic blow-off valve, but also to open uh, if the turbo goes into surge to relieve that excess airflow, move the turbocharger out of surge until the RPM increases. Now if you are interested in learning a little bit more about boost control strategies, mainly some more mainstream strategies and how to tune those. Uh, we do have a boost control tuning course which would be perfect for you. It gives you a nice simple strategy that you can apply to tuning boost control on factory or aftermarket engine management systems. Importantly it also covers a step-by-step -step process you can use for dialing in the PID control algorithm for closed loop boost control and I know that even a lot of fairly established tuners still struggle with this. This is the way of getting rock solid stable boost regardless of your system. As a listener to this podcast you can also use the coupon code podcast75 and that will give you $75 off the purchase of your first HPA course and we'll put a link into this description that you can follow to get you there. Alright with our intro out of the way let's jump into our interview now. Right, welcome to the podcast Tony and, and I think for those who've maybe been hiding under a rock and particularly out following R35 GTR drag racing and half mile racing events, uh, can you maybe give us a, a quick recap on, on your history in T1 race and how you've kind of got to the point you're at now? Sure, yeah. So I started uh, playing with cars in high school. Um, you know, Honda cars back then were, <laughs> that was, that was fast and exciting. Yeah. And everything's, you know, progressed over the years, but I got a job working at Joe Tech Motorsports when I was a uh, senior in high school. And, um, I didn't know anything in particular about cars, just had a, a decent mechanical sense. And, um, I had bought a bunch of, but, but bought a bunch of parts for my car from Joe Tech and I, I put them on myself and he's like, wait, you did all this yourself? I said, yeah. So he offered me a job and kind of jumped in there and, and grew with it. But I've, I've always had a, a desire to, to understand how everything works. And while I never had any formal training for any of it, um, you know, the internet's a pretty good resource and there's a lot of information out there. So well, oh, actually, was, I, I, I'll just, I'll, I'll talk to that for a second because we quite often get asked about this in terms of the training we offer, basically, mm -hmm. You know how how does what we do differ from a, a qualified mechanic? And, and while obviously there's there's these trades, there's mechanics, there's auto electricians, and, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with those. What I find, and, and I think this is probably where you're getting to as well, is our performance automotive industry is is incredibly different and. I've seen a lot of mainstream mechanics that I've employed through my old shop, and I'm sure you're in the same boat, where their experience and what they've learned through their apprenticeship, and they may be qualified and, and they may, may be excellent at working in a franchise dealership, but often that doesn't really translate that well to the performance industry. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the guys have, have gone through uh, just some general mechanic training and not. Uh, it, it seems like not really taking the time to get a better understanding of the inner workings and, and understand how, you yeah. know, in the end, if you, if you know how it works, you can figure out how to improve upon it. You can, you can optimize things. You can do things like that, but, um, just kind of going through the motions of, well, I was taught this and not really, I, I think the biggest place that I see things like that is, uh, when people are trying to troubleshoot a problem 
And, you know, if you don't understand how things work, the troubleshooting process gets a lot different. You know, if it's a stock car and you've got a manual or some expensive piece of diagnostic equipment that points you exactly down the trail to where you don't even have to think, you know, follow this step, follow the next step. But race cars, uh, they're a little different. Yeah, I, I think that ability to to understand the mechanical workings and and actually go through some common sense fault finding and a diagnostic path is a skill that sadly is maybe being lost, particularly with these more complex late model cars. The techs these days really are focusing solely on on their scan tools, and yeah. you know sometimes you got to sort of pop the hood and go, hey, you, you know what, the plug wire is actually just hanging off. That's that's probably <laughs> our issue. Yep. But we, we digress a little bit anyway. I'll let you continue with your, your history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, I ended up getting a job at Joe Tech. I worked there. Uh, we were all pretty green at this and, and learning together. And so started turbocharging uh, Kenny's race car. And um, that was fun. And we, we learned slowly. You know, back then, fuel injection was very basic as far as the aftermarket stuff at least of course and so you know dyno tuning a naturally aspirated honda was a matter of uh, adjusting a fuel pressure regulator and turning the distributor a little bit and adjusting some cam gear so it was kind of you, you kind of couldn't go wrong but it was repeatable enough to make sense of what you were doing and learn okay well, when i'm doing this i'm doing this i mean back then you're adjusting cam gears but you don't know anything about cam overlap or anything you know, yeah it's just yeah. I go this way, this happens, so that's better. <laughs> um, you know, and, and back then, everything was simple like that. So I kind of got to grow with the industry. Yeah. Uh, we went from the uh, Excel DFI Gen 6, which was, you know, just stupid basic. And then um, at that point, we were running in uh, the NHRA Sport Compact Series. And NHRA started to allow methanol for our class. Right, and we we didn't know anything about methanol except that real race cars run it, right? So, yeah. <laughs> we we kind of poked around, and at that point, we reached out to Bob Norwood because he was local, and he's he's been doing this forever, so he's definitely got uh, a lot of experience, at least. Yeah, he's definitely and got so, some runs on the board. Yeah, so we ended up uh, he helped us get uh, a Motec installed on the car, and it was a Motec M forty eight back then. It was that long ago, and. Came to a few races with us to uh, help us get it sorted. And, you know, we learned a lot from that process and continued to grow with things. And I guess it was a couple years into that racing, he offered me a job building uh, chassis at his shop. He had, he had bought a house. He kind of sold the Ferrari part of his business and he bought a house with a shop in the back. And he said, you know, I just, I just want to build race cars. And um, the money was good and it, it seemed like a neat opportunity because I kind of felt like, uh, where, where I was at that point, I was, you know, seven years in at Joe tech and I didn't really feel like I, I had a lot of opportunities to learn other than what I was teaching myself, sure. you know, w- working there. So, um, I took that opportunity. We built some, some really neat shit. Some of it worked. Some of it didn't. Actually, if I remember correctly, so I've, I've followed a little bit of the Bob Norwood story over the years, he's sort of one of the the sort of OGs back in the scene, and and has done some crazy stuff. From what I understand, uh, I think you, you mentioned Ferrari, and I think he was he was twin turbo charging Ferraris from from what I recall. But he also built a uh, a Honda funny car uh, <laughs> with a billet block that was running on nitromethane. Is that is that correct? That was that was a plan for all of it. Sure. It was a uh, it was a full billet 
Um, cylinder head, block, everything. Uh, if I remember right, it was Batten that built it. Sure. Um, but it was it was a big four cylinder uh, with a big turbo on it, and it it never it never really did a whole lot, but it looked really cool. And uh, <laughs> that it counts for something. <laughs> funny car chassis with an Integra body on it. And, yeah. Um, I think they ran it on methanol a little bit, and it kind of did some stuff there, but it, I don't think it ever really did anything on nitro. Okay. But that was a neat car. Uh, that was, it was built before I got there and it basically sat in the garage the whole time that I was there. And then I think he started playing with it a little bit some years after I left. Right. So I don't really know where that, where that stands right now, but we built some neat stuff. We did uh, a pro front wheel drive car for Chris Rado. That was, it was very different. It was a solid axle in the front with a kind of a backwards four link and a V drive and a Linko transmission. And that was um, with a uh, North South mounted engine, basically everything yep. to get the, the weight right in front of that axle line. Yes. Yep. 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 So we, we started, we started with the development on that. We wanted to run a really, really big tire. And the problem with the tire being so tall and wanting to keep the center of gravity as low as you could is the, the roof line wasn't too much taller than the tire. Mm. And, we said, well, no problem. We'll sit the driver in the center of the car and, you know, have the hood come down in between the tires. Yep. So, so we, we get into building this thing and then it turns out the SFI rule book, as far as what the cage spec needs to be, has a spec for left-hand drive where the bars on the left-hand side need to be bigger and or thicker than the bars on the right-hand side. Sure. Or a right-hand drive car that's the other way around, but there isn't a spec for the center drive. And we said, well, what if we just build it with the bigger bars on both sides, right? I mean, makes sense. It, it seems like it would be safer in any regard, but um, they weren't having that. And so we had to make it a uh, normal left-hand drive. Okay. And when the car was all said and done, it wasn't the safest car to drive <laughs> because you couldn't see very well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you're running so, the, the sort of target times you're looking for, I think visibility out of the driver's seat is probably pretty key. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, probably helpful. <laughs> so that car that car didn't end up doing a whole lot they ended up uh building another chassis and that was the one that shane worked on and and it, it ended up it was you know took that same concept and ran with it but um it was it was very different it's still very different if somebody was to build one today it's not uh not a whole lot unique happening in the front wheel drive at, sure. le at least in a, in a solid axle regard yeah yeah so that was cool. So I was there for a couple of years, built that car, built uh, built an all-motor Honda that came out really neat. Um, and then a friend of mine was talking to me and he said, you know, it's it, I think it's time. It's time for you to do your own thing. Mm -hmm. And so in 2005, I saved a little bit of money and I was um, didn't have any kids or anything at that time. So had a little bit of money to invest into something. And I didn't have money to... Uh, you know, start anything like what we have now, but I had some money to rent a little bay and, you know, buy my welder and buy some fabrication stuff. And, and that's what I did. And um, I had a guy that I shared the shop with at that point that his, his business was just selling parts. And I said, look, I don't have any money for inventory and stuff. So if you're going to be selling parts and if you'll have stuff in stock that I can use on my builds, I'll pay you retail for it just for the convenience of having it there. Sure. So, that was the goal, but I had I left my job and uh, jumped in both feet first, and this just had to work for me. I put everything I had into it, 
where he was still he still had his day job and he was just doing this on the side right and so he was never in as much and he made it about a year and he's like it's not it's not working for me so in the end it was you know it wasn't a big deal we weren't partners we were just sharing a building but it allowed me to get through that first year with uh less rent and um it worked well so i made it about eight months on my own handling every aspect of running a business so right (laughs) phones paperwork email building cars tuning cars and then I, i couldn't keep up anymore so i hired a friend of mine and we've just grown slowly from there so we're in our third building now and i i think we're gonna stay here for a while so this one we kind of had a fresh slate uh when i bought the building it was just empty warehouse so we got to start from scratch basically and build it how we wanted it so it still serves us well could you give us a a sort of an idea of you know how, how many staff and what size that facility is now just for those who aren't aware Sure. So we have uh, about 16,500 square feet under uh, on the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, 15,000 of that is air conditioned. So that was a that was a big plus. I never got really to work in an air conditioned shop <laughs> when I was when I was working on cars. Yeah, they make um, it nice. And then we've got uh, we've got about 4,000 square feet of storage upstairs, which is really handy because you know the stuff like the bumpers and we do a lot of wheels and all that stuff that takes up space. Yeah. Um, can be up there out of sight. So um, that works well. We've got 16 employees right now. Okay. Yeah. So it's a pretty, and, uh, pretty big deal. Yeah, we did pretty pretty, pretty well. I think just for maybe anyone who's listening is, is sort of on the fence and maybe contemplating, uh, you know, jumping into to starting their own business, you know, it, it, is, it can be a bit of a minefield. We've, we've done it ourselves with two separate businesses. And I think what you said there, which stuck in my mind, is committing to it because if you've got a lifeline uh yep. it's, it's very hard to sort of go all in and, and that's what the, these sort of businesses require at least in the early years and then the other thing that you've done which is quite obvious is you know, you didn't start with with that massive facility you you've grown the business and your staff as as your customer base has has grown and i think the other thing i'll point out again just for the entrepreneurs who maybe are looking at this is it's one thing being good at the task that you want to base the business around, uh, be it fabrication, mechanical skills or tuning. But the, the bit that's really easy to miss, at least in my own experience at the start, when you're just the one, one man band, uh, you, you're probably only spending about, uh, maybe a third to half of your time on that. And then it's, as you mentioned, all of the other stuff, the invoicing, dealing with customers, quotes, the bookwork, and, and that's the bit that's really easy to overlook. So the quicker you can yeah. grow and get other people involved in that so you can focus on the part you enjoy, uh, the better, I think. Yep. Yep. For sure. There's, as in our industry specifically, uh, you see it all the time, right? There's a lot of people that are good at what they do and they're terrible at running a business. And yep. so, uh, you see these new businesses and everybody wants to get business in. So they're, they're advertising stuff really cheap to get the work in. And then you can't keep up and you don't have enough profit margin to sustain everything. And then build times are taken forever. And, I, I um, think that's one of the things that unfortunately has given the whole industry worldwide a really checkered reputation is this incessant over-promising and, and under-delivering. <laughs> but, but, we're sort of getting off track. I don't want to be here sort of uh, bagging those out there, giving it a go. But, I mean, the the skills of 
being a business owner often are very different to the skills of actually working on a car and, and that's kind of important. Well, let, let's get into sort of your shift from that Honda market into the R35 which I, I think you probably at the moment T1 is best known for so when the R35 platform first launched in the US why did you look at that and go you know what this is the one this is where we're going? I had zero plans for it. Okay. So when I, all of my experience in the past was Honda stuff. So when I opened my shop, that was naturally what I started doing. And then in 2006, I built an Integra for a customer and he was taking it to the local tracks and stuff. And he wasn't, he wasn't much of a driver. He didn't understand the car very much. So he wasn't really getting the results that he hoped for. And he asked me to come to one of the events with him and ask if, if I would drive the car. And I've never driven, uh, at the time, this was like 600, 650 horsepower. I'd never driven anything like it, but I understand the car pretty well. And so I figured, you know, what the hell. And I jumped in the car. We ended up running a, a 10.0 or a 10.1, and, which was the fastest front-wheel drive street car in Texas at the time. Right. And we won that event. And I was hooked, and he was hooked. And so that was what kind of what started the, uh, the T1 race car. Sure. So we we went the next season. I said, look, you know, if I'm going to drive this thing, I want to make it faster. I'll do the labor on it. You cover the parts. So we did, and we went nines next time out, and it continued to progress, and everything was great. But you know, after a year of that, uh, as the guy who just pays for it and gets to smile and watch it, I think the the, <laughs> the fun kind of goes away. Yeah. So probably. you know, it, we had, it ended on good terms, and he he asked me if I would buy the car from him, and so I did, and continued racing that. Uh, up until 2010. So in 2010, business was doing pretty good. Uh, I had always liked the way the GTR looked. Mm -hmm. So I was finally at a position where I could buy one. So I bought a a used 2009 GTR. I I literally said, as I was driving it home from the dealership, this looks perfect, I'm not going to touch it. (laughs) Famous last words. I I honestly thought that was how it was going to go down. (laughs) So... Um, I ended up two weeks later, the Texas mile, there's a race coming up and a friend of mine had a ticket and his car wasn't going to be ready in time. And so he said, Hey, if you want to take my ticket and run your GTR, you can. And I'm like, all right, well, that's cool. Cause I was already going. Sure. So I figured, well, if I'm going to run it, I might as well at least put exhaust on it and tune it. And they, so they wrote not built, to. A, <laughs> built an exhaust for it, put a cob on it, tuned it, ran it out there. And it, you know, I, made 600 horsepower or something. It's not like it was, you know, super fun at that point, but uh, I just put wheels on it and started doing a couple little things. But then we were going to local race events at Import Faceoff and I've got the Integra out there. We're racing the Integra and people are coming by seeing the GTR and they're saying, you know, can you guys work on GTRs too? And obviously, you know, compared to the $10,000 Hondas we're working on, there's a lot more potential with a $100,000 car. Of course, yeah. So, uh, for about a year, we kind of did a little bit with the GTR and then we're still playing with the Honda stuff. And then I said, you know, we've got more GTR work coming in than we can keep up with. It doesn't make sense to be working on, you know, smaller Honda builds. So in 2011, we stopped working on everything, but the GTR and I had my car and, you know, the way I've always been. I don't want to learn on a customer's car. So this is a new platform to us. We want to learn if we decide we're going to work on these things and we're going to continue pushing it, uh, we need a car to do it with. And so that's what my car has always been Mm -hmm. and, you know, why it's gone through so many stages. But 
it's been good. And we've, you know, started out as nobody in the market. There are a lot of people doing it before we were. So it's not, we certainly weren't the first to that market, but I think we've made a pretty good name in that, in that field after 10 years raising them. Yeah. I mean, you only have to look at the results from, from any of the events like uh, TX2K or World Cup finals and yeah, T1's uh, definitely prominent up there so yeah, you, you've got the runs on the board to prove that uh, you know what you're doing um, with it um, I, I think probably what I'd like to know is, is obviously you've just mentioned you're using your own car for the development and I think that's um, a, you know, I can applaud you there for, for doing the development on your own car rather than, than a customer's which is how a lot of shops do it um, what Obviously, from where you started to where you are at the moment uh, with cars and well in the sixes, what have you sort of seen as the the biggest change that that's uh, led to these improvements in top speed and uh, ETs over the time you've been working on that platform? Uh, power's probably number one, I would say, but uh, not far behind it is the engine management side of things. Yeah. So... You know, we went from having the stock ECU and only being able to control six injectors with with limited control of other systems. Um, so eventually, that was a that's a power limitation. So then the standalone start coming out, and now we can do stage injection. And now the stock ECUs they have a way to do it as well. So you know, the, we don't have fueling limitations anymore. Yeah. But by the time you start to make the kind of power that you need twelve injectors for, or eighteen injectors on the bigger stuff. Um, there's a lot of limitations with the stock ECU. So basically any of these cars that are, that are doing anything, you know, remotely big, all have a standalone in them. And that's, yeah. that's been everything. So from what I understand in that market at the moment, you've, you've essentially got two main players, which are Cyvex and the Motec M1 platform, which, which you favor. Is that about right? Are there are other players yeah. out there as well? Yeah. No, nah, it's, it's really just them. Okay. I mean, in any kind of volume. Yeah, and and when those came on board, I'm, I'm assuming that when Motec initially released that released their R35 package, which is essentially plug and play with the ability to then add on additional sensors, outputs, etc. Like you said, twelve injectors. Uh, that is that in itself also developed as a product over the years you've been involved with it. <laughs> yeah, certainly. So, um, Cyvex was the first one to come out with the twelve injector option, and so we. We started putting those on everything and we did a lot with it and it was very, very new, uh, a very new product for Cybex. Um, we learned a lot. We hurt some parts along the way because things weren't right. And, it, you know, it's just, that's, that's how it goes, right? That's the learning. And <clears throat> the Motec's been the same way. You know, there's, there's been plenty of things to learn along the way. When they do, when they do a development for, for a piece like this in Australia, um, they're not they're not racing the car, yeah. right? They're 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 reverse engineering what stock ECU is doing, and putting something in place that will do the same thing. So uh, everything is fundamentally right for the most part, but there are there's just some limitations. You know, like the the Huracan kit that they built, um, they never even launched the car, which you know <laughs> they don't necessarily need to, but. We're doing the the further development on things like that, and and both manufacturers have been really great about, um, you know, taking what we learn and and making corrections and and improving it. So, 
both both kits have have certainly evolved a lot from from their release i I guess it's important to understand for these manufacturers such as motec and cyvex i mean it's usually not feasible for them to be developing a a car to test their product on that's going to run six second quarters so i mean they they do have to heavily rely on the likes of of you guys at that cutting edge to sort of give them the feedback on where that product's lacking uh, what other features or or problems need to be ironed out correct yeah certainly and you know we're we're the ones that that need what they can offer us so it's not like we're not going to be open to giving them feedback so that that allows us to do our job so it's it works well it's two-way street now there's some other complexities particularly around the the r35 platform these days can integration with all of the other electronic modules and just about any production cars is a given so it makes it a little bit more complex than just replacing the factory engine control module with an aftermarket standalone you could probably get the engine running but then none of your electronic systems work maybe your aircon doesn't work your gauge cluster probably won't work and that's fine. That's the reverse engineering you're talking about with MoTeC, basically getting all of that CAN communications up and running so everything else works. The tricky integration, and I mean, obviously here, I'm no expert on it, but I've got a, a broad understanding of that platform. The tricky integration there is between the uh, transmission control module and the engine control module because that GR6 dual clutch transmission is so pivotal to to getting the r35 to to do what it does so can you talk to us a little bit about how the motec uh communicates and 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 sort of works in conjunction with the stock tcm sure so uh the motec is trying to emulate what the stock ecu is doing in, in that regard um a lot of it actually works kind of backwards of what you might think and that the TCM tells the ECU what it wants, especially in, in a shifting event or anything like that. So uh, the MoTeC sends uh, pedal position, throttle position, engine speed, torque, and a number of other things to the TCM to allow it to do what it wants to do. So all the programming is within the TCM. Yep. And the only manipulation that we have from the MoTeC would be kind of... Uh, lying to it about different inputs. For instance, we may take uh, a clutch that could handle 600 pounds of torque and then put something in it that'll handle 1,800 foot-pounds of torque, and it, it doesn't shift very well, especially in the mid-range, right? So sure. we can't get into the factory TCM enough to, to adjust the proper tables okay. for that kind of thing. So our way around that is lying to the TCM about how much torque we're making in those regards. So we tell it we're making less torque. It reduces the clutch pressure in those areas, and you can get the car to drive a lot more like stock. Is this a bit more challenging for that aspect if you're if you're dealing with a, a pretty heavily modified car that's going to be street driven where those part throttle and sort of lower RPM shifts are more critical than for an outright drag car where everything is likely going to be wide open throttle only? Yeah, it's way more difficult on the, you know, as we get big cams and big injectors and the big clutch, uh, all those things that make a, make a car drive nice have kind of gone away. Mm-hmm. And so it's definitely more difficult to get a car to drive nice for, we, we don't do a Motec in something relatively stock very often. Uh, we've done a couple where somebody was just, we'll put the Motec in now because we know where we're going to go later. And you yeah. tune a car, you tune a car with a stock engine and a stock clutch on a Motec, and it's like, wow, that was really easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, 
Yeah, you, you've mentioned the the talk value and and sort of cheating that lying to the TCM about what's actually going on, uh, which actually brings me to the next aspect where the Motec does things a little bit differently on this platform, where it is actually a talk based uh, model as opposed to a conventional speed density based model that we we're probably more used to with aftermarket. Nothing particularly new about this. OEs have been doing it for a long time. But can, can you maybe just give us a little insight on what are the what's the difference here? Uh, what is a torque model and and how is that sort of work from a tuner's perspective? Yeah, so whatever your reason might be for limiting limiting power or torque. Uh, whether it's traction or the strength of a, a part or anything like that, it all boils back down to torque, right? Yeah. And so if rather than doing boost control by gear, for example, you're doing torque control by gear, uh, if you were to overlay the dynograph of uh, the same peak torque number, but one of them doing torque control where it's going to turn the boost up as engine speed increases, uh, you're going to get a significant more significant amount more power on the torque based one with sure. no additional force at the tire. So if the tire would hold the torque at the peak, then it's going to take it up top too. So you can really optimize acceleration that way. And really, you know, we've got really good traction control and really good launch control. And that's kind of like a, a fallback, but you don't, you don't want to rely on that solely. So the goal is to get all the, all the torque limiting dialed in to where, as far as I'm concerned, I want to be just over what it'll take to where the yep. traction control is just barely working, right? Because yeah, okay. the road might get better. might get worse too, but it might get better. So then it can accelerate better. Um, but that works both ways too. And that when the transmission controller uh, needs a torque reduction for a shift, it knows you're making this much torque and I want this much torque. So it can send a proper torque reduction to the TCM which or to the ECU, which it will listen to, mm. whether it's um, ignition retard or ignition cut or throttle but it has all those ways of reducing torque. So it, with a, a conventional dual-clutch transmission factory engine management system, obviously smooth drivability and nice smooth shifts are, are obviously what the, they're looking for. And I mean, there's various ways of doing that. One of the nicest ways of reducing torque in that way was probably going to be either ignition retard or ignition retard maybe were coupled with closing the throttle which with a big turbo we, we don't really want to do closing the throttle in particular is going to uh, mean that it's going to take time to spool back up when we get back to wide open throttle so what are, what are your options there you've, you've mentioned or what are you using I should say on the drag cars do you do you keep the throttle open the whole time or is that not reduce the torque enough for the transmission to live yeah, definitely keep the throttle open, yep. uh, especially as the turbos get big. Otherwise, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, my preference is ignition retard as long as that's enough. Mm-hmm. So on some of the big cars where we're running all the clutch discs that can fit and we're running all the clutch pressure that we can and it's still not necessarily enough, then I'll induce a little bit of ignition cut on the shift. Uh, no more than I need to because it will kill the boost. Not as bad as the throttle, but it'll still kill the boost. Yeah. So uh, ignition retard and then only cut if I need it. So essentially, if you've got enough clutch and they're not going to slip, you could basically perform the shift with little to no torque reduction. You could, as long as all the parts will take it. So the newer uh, GTRs in stock form, when you launch them, there's no torque reduction on the shift. Okay. So they figured, you know, we, we know know that all the parts will take it. And when you're launching it, 
we assume that you're at a racetrack where you need every last little bit. Yeah. And so they've determined that in that situation, they'll, they'll take the torque reduction away just to get that last little bit. So uh, you kind of don't ever want more than you need, but you need it at some point. Sure. All right, so the, the complexity here is we've talked about the MoTeX side of things, but this is still communicating with the, the stock TCM, and you're still going to need to make some changes to the calibration of that TCM. So now you're using two software packages for, for tuning the entire car, is that correct? Yep, yep. And what's the, the software of choice for that? Uh, Accutech and Cobb both have an option for the TCM, and depending on how much stuff you need to tweak in there um if you just need to raise clutch pressures and kind of uh raise the launch limiter and some temperature warning thresholds and such uh they can both do that ecutech has a little bit more control in there but there's a lot of undefined tables that um, most people don't have the balls to go in there and start (laughs) start tweaking to see what happens so um we're still in our biggest cars we're definitely at a point where we could benefit from more control sure uh, on that note, Motec started developing an M1 TCM in 2010 or 11 or something, working with Dodson. Yeah, and that was back when the factory TCM ROM was was kind of crude compared to today. There was a lot of room for improvement. Okay, and then as they were working on the development of this, the stock stuff kept getting better. And at the time, we weren't making enough power to, to, to require a standalone TCM. Yeah. So the project kind of got shelved. And a couple of years ago, I pushed pretty hard to get it taken off the shelf and finish the development on it because every car in my shop could benefit from it at this point. Yeah. So um, it was written with an older version of M1 build, and so it had to be updated to the latest version. So they did that, and I... I put it in one of the cars here that is a, a street car that I could just go drive and, you know, really get a feel for it and learn it. Um, so it does exist. There's one, but it does exist. And it it still needs some more work. It's not ready. And since nobody can go to work in Australia for the past year and a half, <laughs> it's, it's kind of taken a back seat. And yeah. um, it'll be really neat when it's done because it'll open up, you know, the possibility to make have proper data logging and related to everything in the transmission computer. Yeah. We can run more clutch pressure, which is a problem. Um, and the hard coded limits or something on clutch pressures at the moment that yeah. you can't change. And, and you know, n- not saying there's not a way around it, but I'm unaware of anything that, you know, we can 22 bar is about all I've gotten out of anything. Okay. So I, I ran 25 bar on, um, with the M1 TCM on the streetcar that I was playing with just to, you know, get a feel for it. Sure. The other thing that could be really good there is the GTRs have a real problem drag racing anything but a GTR, right? Okay. So if we're on a if we're on a pro tree, um, if you're on a pro tree, you kind of just go in first and get in launch, and everybody knows that they could burn you down, and so you end up sitting there just cringing because mm. seven seconds is an eternity in that situation. Yeah, um, we could potentially wire in a clutch pedal. And have clutch by wire, and you'd be able to to launch the thing uh, like a regular manual transmission car. So you could stage it normally, have a staging brake, clutch pedal, um, and have computer control of the clutch slip on the launch. And obviously, you wouldn't use clutch after that. Yeah. But that that is a would be a really neat thing to add to one of these cars for somebody who wanted to drag race. So, so let's just go back a bit. So the 
the inability to to drag race anything but a, a GTR. So is is that down to the time required to build boost uh, while you're yeah. staging? Yeah, it takes on the bigger turbo cars. I mean, it takes a solid couple seconds sure. to to get up on launch, right? And without the ability to easily uh, pre-stage, get in launch, and yep. then bump into the fully stage beam, technically we do have the ability to do it, but it's kind of a, a pat your head, rub your belly thing, yeah. and and try to cut a light at the same time with yeah. what you have to do with the button. So uh, the ability is there, but I, I couldn't possibly do it myself and, and cut a light. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, having the ability to do something is one thing, but having the ability to do it repeatedly under the the stress of trying to also cut a light and beat a competitor off the tree and yeah. do, do that time and time again is something completely different. Uh, in terms of the that strategy, just so for those who maybe aren't following, so we see a lot of uh, auto trans cars will will come into that first light where they're not fully staged, and obviously, as you mentioned, the bigger turbos they take a lot of time to spool up. Up and uh, that can kill everything. So you can sort of get that that turbo spooled and then bump the the car fully into stage. So basically, when you're into stage, you're ready to to, to go. So uh, whereas you're you're talking about getting fully into stage, both beams, and then you start building boost, which takes a couple of seconds. Yep, yep, yeah. If you go in second on approach, you're screwed. I mean, yeah, okay. you, can't, you can't possibly. Okay, All right, so the. In terms of the transmission, we've talked about the electronics, but but obviously the the actual transmission itself is a is another whole can of worms. And I, I know at least here in New Zealand, in the early days, they sort of was something that a lot of people shied away from. There were some problems with some of those very first generation GR6s as well with reliability. And all I heard about was uh, was huge bills for repairing them when they went wrong. <laughs> uh, these days, you know, obviously a lot of those bugs have been ironed out even in the factory cars. And then, you know, you look at what's required to, to put sort of 3,000 horsepower potentially through one of these. Obviously, just about every component has to be changed. And uh, I know locally in New Zealand, Dodson Motorsport are, uh, are pretty much the I think the the market leaders for the the uh, improved clutches for them and other parts and you've got uh, John from Ship Racing he, he seems to be uh, probably the key yep. person for putting them together you talk about what actually needs to be done inside a GR6 at, at these sort of levels yeah so huge credit to those two people because as far as I'm concerned they are the reason that we're able to do this and mm-hmm. to be able to take this engine that was designed for 500 foot pounds of torque and and take 2000 uh is really impressive in itself but it does take a lot of parts so um part of the problem when the when the gtr was released it kind of got a bad rap that uh, they, they always have transmission failures right well mm. normally your transmission is a set of gears maybe yeah. a differential if it's a front-wheel drive car but we have that we have a valve body we have a clutch we have a front-wheel drive clutch we've got drop gears we've got a ring and pinion so there's a lot of pieces that fall into this transmission blanket yeah and there's a lot of them that need to be upgraded so starting at the front the front case which is where the drive shaft comes in to drive the clutch um, the case itself can crack okay and so uh, there's a billet case to take care of that part and then you've got the clutches where um, we're up to 13 to 14 clutch discs per uh, input shaft yeah uh upgraded input shaft every gear in the transmission the drop gears the pressure sensors the front wheel drive clutch the shaft driving the clutch 
the ring and pinion, the differential, uh, the differential cover. <laughs> There's definitely more aftermarket parts than there are stock parts. <laughs> so how, how close are we to sort of bidding the whole thing and looking at something completely aftermarket? Obviously, the, the dual clutch side of things becomes uh, an issue there. But I mean, if we look at the likes of some of the, um, let's say, uh, Lamborghini Huracan, uh, when they develop those for the likes of, of GT3 racing, uh, they go from the DCT transmission to a, a proper uh, paddle shifted dog engagement yep. gearbox. Is, is that a thing? Or do you actually still get an advantage uh, from the dual clutch in terms of you know, that they, they, they can go with almost uninterrupted torque, whereas even a dog engagement transmission, we still need that torque interrupt to allow the dogs to disengage? Right. Uh, I think the more important factor of it is if we're drag racing, um, which one can we leave the line with better? Sure. Right. The, the DCT in itself going through the gears is great down the track. Um, the gear ratios are not ideal. They could certainly be better for the GTR in anything that we're revving as high as we are. You know, you hear the Huracan go down the track and I mean, it's, it's through seven gears before it's even at the end of the track yeah and um i think tighter gear ratios could be beneficial we could definitely use um a different first gear ratio but um the biggest advantage i think is going to be in if you go to say an automatic transmission with a torque converter is how the car leaves the line and yeah. that's that's our big problem so since we have a little bit of control over how how much it slips the clutch on the line we don't have enough control to rely solely on that to where like if we wanted to run a drag radial tire where you you, you can't spin the tire, you have to leave line, whether it's clutch slip or converter slip. Um, we can't do it consistently enough to get the type of results that people are getting you know, on, a, on the drag radial tire. I guess even, even with, uh, you know, you mentioned 12, 14 clutch discs, we're still talking about a very small diameter basket with all of those clutch discs compared to a conventional drag racing slider style clutch. So yeah. I, I'm assuming that if you slip it like you would slip a conventional drag racing clutch off the line uh, to keep that tyre hooked up, you're going to smoke that clutch pretty quickly. <clears throat> yeah, so the, the by the time you get that many frictions in there, the steel plates get really, really thin. So mm -hmm. we're about a millimetre thick on the steels. Yeah. Right. Well, once once the the steels get hot enough to warp, there went air gap and the car uh, it won't shift. Right. So <clears throat> it's certainly a limiting factor if even we did have the control to slip it as much as we needed. Yeah. Uh, it may or may not take it without breaking. So uh, we've definitely in manipulating what we tell the transmission computer. We've certainly improved things over the past couple of years. Um, where our, our faster cars are in the high one teens for 60 foot, which uh, was not happening a few years ago. It's no joke. I think that's been that's been one of the biggest things. But also, as as the engines uh, as the turbos get bigger, the engines get a little bit bigger. But everything shifts to the right as far as power band goes, right? Of so course. we need to keep this thing above, say, 6,000 RPM for a 3.8 or 4.1 liter engine with 80 millimeter turbos. And so if you're going to do that, you either have to slip the clutch pretty far down the track through first gear, or you have to spin the tire quite a bit. Yeah. So as we make more and more power, the launch gets harder and harder. For, for instance, uh, we have a car that makes 15, just over 1500 horsepower on 58 millimeter turbos. They're extremely responsive. That car can leave the line at 
4,000 RPM and I've gone 116, 60 foot with it. Wow. it like, no big deal. I mean, it just leaves nice and smooth and it doesn't do anything stupid because there's not so much differential uh, in engine speed on the launch. Yep. It, it, can't, it can't bog. It just comes out really nice. So that's been the battle as the cars make more and more power is, you know, the power always works out the back end. But yeah, yeah. Not but you've got to get that out. 60 foot as well because otherwise you're just making your, your life a lot harder to, to get yep. the ET in the deep end. Yep. All right. Let, let's talk a little bit about the engine, the VR thirty eight, uh, and I mean it's again a, a pretty well known entity at this point, and, and we've seen over the years, as with with most of the drag racing applications, the, the shift to the billet block. Uh, could, could you talk to us a little bit about where the limitations were with the stock block, and, and at what point you sort of feel that the shift to a billet is is required? Yep. So. Coming from Honda stuff, we had to sleeve everything. Yep. And that was just how I'd always done everything. So the first GTR engine we had apart, we're looking at it and it's all aluminum. Like there's not even a steel liner. And we thought, you know, there's no way that this is going to last. Plus we can put an MID sleeve in there and we can increase the bore size, which from all of my other engine experience is almost always beneficial. Yep. So <clears throat> we did that and we started, started making about a thousand foot pounds of torque and breaking blocks breaking these these sleeved blocks and they would the block would crack just at the base of the head stud okay and turns out that because so much material had been removed for the mid sleeve to go in that we lost all the strength holding the the crank to the block <laughs> so you've and, kind of fixed one problem and inadvertently created a whole new issue yep and so it ended up that it was uh, there's kind of a, a parting line in the casting just below the head stud, and that's it would just separate right there from, okay. from cylinder pressure. So we took a step back and I said, you know, I've, I've never heard of anybody actually breaking one of these sleeves or having a problem with the factory liner. Mm -hmm. um, it's a plasma sprayed bore. Um, it just looks like it's all aluminum when you look at it. So took a step back, stopped sleeving things, and just said you know we'll see how far this goes so far we've made over 2500 wheel horsepower on the factory liners <laughs> and i've i've still to this day yet to have a failure <laughs> that's so. impressive so that's one of those areas <laughs> where you just look at something and from experience you, you say this could never work we're, we're just going to have to fix this from the get-go and uh yeah it's it's stronger than you gave it credit for <laughs> You know, when when you were younger and you get into this game and you think, oh man, there's there's an aftermarket part that's certainly better than the factory <laughs> part, right? Yeah. And then the the longer you do this, the more you, the more you realize often the factory part is better than the aftermarket part. Yeah, I think it's easy to overlook that uh, Nissan's budget for research and development <laughs> is significantly higher than probably any aftermarket parts manufacturer out there. So the old story: if it, if it isn't broken, don't fix it. Yep, yep. I've I've learned to take that approach a lot more. All right. So so you've just mentioned twenty five hundred horsepower on the stock block. So is is that the point where you know the billet is essential, or there are, are there other reasons to switch to billet below that so power level? Really, when it comes to, as far as our engine program goes, so we we have found other problems with the block. Um, keeping the head gasket sealed is a big one. Main bearing wear is a big one. And we have addressed all those areas. So our cast block is taking that kind of power. But um, 
strength-wise cylinders and, and whatnot are capable. Yeah. But as far as our engine program goes, if you are making 2,500 or more horsepower, you've got really big turbos. And that's a point where the additional displacement from being able to increase the bore size comes into play. So we go to the billet block because we can go from a 4.1 liter to 4.3, which isn't drastic, but it's still, it's something at this, at this level. Yeah. And anything, anything's going to help with those bigger turbos. Yeah. So that's, that's my biggest thing. Um, I haven't found a strength limitation of either one at this point, but we go to the billet block at those power levels for mainly because the car will launch better because we yeah. don't have to launch it as high. So in terms of the, the limiting factors with the, the VR38, uh, if we forget about displacement for a moment, you just mentioned head gasket sealing, which I'll, I'll get into in a moment, but you just talked about uh, bearing main bearing reliability. Um, and another issue with the, the V6 design is the, the limited size of the, the big end bearing. So uh, is that a, a, a real issue? And you sort of alluded to you've got workarounds for those. I don't necessarily need you to tell us all your secrets here, but uh, can, can you fix those issues basically? Yeah, so you know it's tough because there's only four main bearings, mm. right? So number two and three are, are taking a, a beating. Um, and the main bearing wear was a big problem a lot of it was from the the block flexing. So we've increased the strength of the girdle and the fasteners. And that's done a lot to keep odd main bearing wear out of the picture. Sure. And then the other thing is the the factory oiling system um, above 7,000 RPM isn't amazing. And then you put it in a high G situation and it's even less amazing. So um, the when you look at the oil pressure data trace on, on a stock oiling system at say 8,000 RPM, um, you, it gets real jittery and that's air. And so that's, that's the problem. And so what it comes down to is it's not that a higher horsepower level makes that problem worse. It's that the main bearings are taking, well, all the bearings are taking more of a load and they're less, they can, they can put up with it for less time. So something that's making a thousand horsepower will have a longer life there. So, Anything that we build, if it's going to make over fifteen or sixteen hundred horsepower, it gets a dry sub oil system, yeah. and that's gone a long way. Okay. Now, in terms of before we get into this head gasket uh, situation, uh, in terms of the reliability of the engines in general, I think it's really easy, particularly for those who, who watch a few YouTube videos and maybe uh, read a few threads on forums or you know uh, builds and car magazines, to think, well, you know, I can, I can have my two and a half thousand horsepower GTR, and uh, maybe just uh, send it into the dealership every ten thousand miles for an oil change, and that's going to do a hundred thousand miles with um, with no issues. Maybe a change of plugs once in a while. Wow. Uh, the reality, however, may be a little different. Slightly. <laughs> I, I wish I could I could offer that, but unfortunately, we can't. We're no. we're still working with the size constraints of what Nissan deemed sufficient, right? So, of course, if you if you were to take a, a big big billet V8 that makes twenty five hundred horsepower apart and look at the size of the rods and the size of the crank and and everything. Um, it's it's wild that we're able to do it with what we have. Yeah, but we just can't do it forever that way. So, on something that makes twenty five hundred plus horsepower, um, you know, realistically, I would say twenty to thirty passes would be doing pretty good. Um, not that it wouldn't 
that it wouldn't need attention at that point. Like I, I bet if you took it apart at 20 passes, you'd, you, you'd put new bearings in it and maybe put new pistons in it, but um, it probably won't come apart yet. Yeah. And, okay. You know, before we had the head gasket deal sorted, um, we were just putting uh, MLS head gaskets on it and I was running, I was probably making 16 or 1800 horsepower at the time. And I would run it until I started seeing coolant pressure get high, knowing the head gasket was leaking. Mm. And so I would pull the cylinder heads off, put new head gaskets on, but not take anything in the short block apart. Because okay. you know what you find is you're going to see <laughs> where the crank's going to be cracked, the pistons are going to be cracked. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to keep going and see where it comes apart. I put three sets of head gaskets on that thing and raced a, a season and a half on it. And then finally the crank broke. Wow. So, you know, where where parts aren't perfect and where parts fail is often pretty far apart. I think you've touched on something that, that I distinctly remember from uh, Mitsubishi Evo 9 that we were running that at the time set the world record and it went as quick as 8.34 at 169. So nothing compared to today's times. But one of the things we noticed with that car uh, was the the uh, crown wheel and pinion for the uh, the centre differential, and we just happened to to pull that apart after a, a full meeting, and it had done maybe ten or twelve passes, and it had cracks, visible cracks. You didn't need to uh, have it crack tested. Visible cracks through the root of every single tooth on the crown wheel. And yep. we're like, well, well, okay, obviously we're going to have to change that. That's a no-brainer. And there's no aftermarket parts at that point. I don't even know if there are now. So a uh, new crown wheel and, and pinion went into it. And um, next time we go to a drag meeting, do the same thing. Lo and behold, it's cracked. So that became a, a maintenance part for that particular car. After every meeting, we, we changed it. And I, I remember we went to one meeting that got rained out and the car did one launch, didn't even go down the track. And as a matter of course, we were looking at some other things and the crown wheel and pinion came out and uh, the damn things cracked after one launch. So then it gets to what you were saying. So, well, uh, is it going to fall apart after 12 passes or, or is it crack and then it will do 50 passes? But <laughs> once you've seen a crack there, it's pretty hard to go and uh, put that part back in a car and, and have, yep. a good, have a good conscience about it. Yep, yep. I had an experience with my Honda at one point uh, Liberty was making a, a gear set and we just had it apart for something else. I don't remember what we were doing, but it happened to look down and the pinion gear was like, it didn't even look like it was the same tooth. I mean, it was, it, it wasn't cracked, but it was so soft that it was sharp and like <laughs> reshaped. And right. I was like, oh, wow. So yeah, there's certainly a balance somewhere in hardness. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, all right, so head gaskets, which is is a topic that is near and dear to my heart because just about <laughs> any of the sport compact engines that we're involved with in a drag sense, that was basically the limiting factor for how much boost and, and hence how much power we could actually feed into those engines. So you, you mentioned MLS, multi-layer steel, which is, is pretty typical. Um, OEs use those. They're in, available in the aftermarket. They'll get you so far. Uh what, what sort of happens to those gaskets that that becomes problematic and, and you know what what are the solutions in your eyes so we had uh, a pretty good mls program going between we had a custom gasket built by comedic for us and then we had copper rings in the block and what would happen is the cylinder head deck surface would yield 
Mm-hmm. And so once that happens, you've lost your clamp on the gasket and the middle layer, which was the thinnest one, would just start to compress toward the, the water jacket. So wow. once you took it apart, if, if you caught it before it blew, you'd take it apart and, you know, look at the two outer layers and they looked fine. And then you spread them apart and look at the inner one and it's all wrinkled, <laughs> wrinkled outward. Yeah. So um, that lasted a long time. But the fact of the matter is the, the deck surface of the cylinder head will not stay flat at big power for a long time. Okay. And so that was the deal. That was why we, we kept going through this stuff. Um, the current setup we use now, which we've been using for a long time, and I was uh, different about talking about it back then because it was a, it was something we had that a lot of people didn't. But um, we use a, a what we call a fire ring setup now. And it uses a, uh, you machine a groove into the cylinder and there's a, a, a ring that sits at the top of the sleeve. Yep. And it's just a flat surface that contacts the flat surface of the cylinder head. And then uh, the copper gasket goes around that. And so your your crush on the, the firing is the distance, the difference between the gasket thickness and the this ledge of the ring. Yep. And so we've played with a lot of different things there as far as the, the amount of crush and then different sealants on the head gaskets and different processes to really dial that in. But the nice thing about that is we still run into over time, they're going to start leaking because mm-hmm. that cylinder head's going to yield. And the difference with that is it's not going to blow it out like it does in MLS. Sure. So where uh, some of our some of our race cars, as long as we always set up the cooling system to be able to handle a lot of pressure yep. and for there to be a safe place for water to go should any get pushed out. As in not, so, on, not onto the tires. Right. <laughs> So with these cars, we always monitor coolant pressure at the outlet of the cylinder heads, which is on the high pressure side of the system. Yep. And typically, uh, well, it, it always increases with engine speed because it's a mechanical pump. Yep. And we typically see on on a, a fresh engine that's not messed up yet, uh, 30, 35, maybe close to 40 PSI by redline. Okay. And, you know, what I'm looking for in the data there is that the curve is relatively linear with engine speed. Yep. And also um, I'll do a scatter plot in I2 where I've got coolant pressure versus uh, engine speed with the color being manifold pressure. Yeah, okay. And I, I don't want to see it going up as manifold it, pressure yeah. increases. Yeah. So uh, eventually it'll start to happen. And I've run cars down the track at over 100 pounds of coolant pressure with no issues. They'll, they'll spit a little bit of water out, but I haven't had any problems. But so, it's, a, it's a sign that, that that engine needs a bit of attention in the head department. Yeah. So, you know, used to when they might see like 50 or 60, we go, all right, you know, this engine needs to come out. And uh, <laughs> when you're at the racetrack, sometimes you do different things than you would do if you were preparing for a race. Yeah. Like, uh, it's at 60, but I think it's okay. And you keep <laughs> running it and you end up at 100 and it's still going. And so you're, you're, window of where it needs to come out kind of shifts a little bit yeah so yeah. uh yeah I'll, I'll run them up there as long as the car has been built around it right so i don't want rubber rubber lines with you know the spring type hose clamps or anything like that where those can blow off but yeah. if it's all in lines and it's a good radiator and there is somewhere for the for the fluid to go then it seems to be okay okay 
when you say that that head surface yields, d- does that mean that the head is a throwaway, or is it able to be decked and recovered a number of times? Because I'm, I'm guessing every time you're doing that, you're taking a few thou off the head surface, so that yeah. gets thinner and thinner as well, making the the problem happen sooner. Is that is that a fair assumption? Um, I I wouldn't say that I've seen it happen faster after it's been milled a couple times. Okay, but we've certainly you can you can definitely fix them multiple times before they're trash okay so there's enough enough material there yeah in terms it's it sounds from what you've said that the problem is is really the head not the block but um in terms of you know other factory cast blocks one of the issues we see is actually the deck surface of the the block itself is not thick enough to be stable Uh, is is that not an issue with the vr38 or are we already talking about billet blocks at this point so it doesn't matter uh, no, I mean we certainly run the, the stock block to power levels where this is a this is a concern, um, but the deck seems to hold its a flat surface a lot longer than the cylinder head does. Yeah, okay. um, and I think you know if you've seen one of the VR thirty eight block, it doesn't have um, it doesn't have a floating sleeve in a sense. Like it, 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 there's there's holes for coolant, but it's very well tied into the the perimeter of the block, and it's got it's got a nice beefy surface there. So a proper closed deck block. Yeah. All right, uh, just in terms of the that combination with the the ceiling ring uh, firing as you've called it and and the copper gasket uh those copper gaskets that that technology again nothing new and and those are <laughs> used up to top fuel with a uh, uh, o-ring and a receiver groove so uh, one of the problems is that the copper gasket however does a horrible job of sealing oil and water uh in your opinion, first of all, have you got techniques to get around that that are bulletproof? And in your opinion, is that solution, the firing and the copper gasket, uh, suitable for a street application or is it pure MLS for that? Uh, definitely suitable for street. Okay. Um, and at this point, we do have something that is works well and is repeatable uh, for, for sealing. But that did take a lot of different testing with different chemicals and different processes. Um Every engine that we do, when it's done, uh, it sits overnight and we pressurize the cooling system, put a bore scope in the bores and make sure that nothing's leaking in the cylinders because we've had issues with that in the past before things were as sorted as they are now. So yeah, it's been a process, but we do have it to where we do it on basically every engine we build. Okay, cool, cool. All right, look, I think we'll, we'll move towards wrapping this up, Tony, uh, before we go go too long. Uh, before we do finish up, is there anything that uh, you, you sort of think that we've overlooked so far in this convo around the R35 that uh, you think we should should have talked about? No, I don't think so. But uh, we didn't talk about turbos, but turbo technology has certainly been uh, a factor in what's allowed things to continue to go faster. Um, yeah, hundred percent agree. Yeah, particularly over the last decade or so. Yeah, the the advances and and what we've seen with the turbo compressor efficiency, as well as the materials that they're using, the ability to run a bigger turbocharger without sacrificing the response that we used to have to do has been pretty impressive. Yeah, on our, on our big stuff, um, compressor surge was a, was a huge issue uh, just three or four years ago. Uh, and it still is on certain turbos, but you know we've got kind of the equivalent of about a two liter engine with an eighty seventy six to eighty four millimeter turbo. So it's a it's a big combo, and end up 
getting kind of pissed off in the mid range. Mm. So there are some turbos out now that that don't. And when I was racing my car, um, every gear change it would surge until about seventy five hundred RPM. And you look at the data, and you go, I I can't believe this thing's running as fast as it is <laughs> because it looks terrible in the data. Yeah. So uh, that's come around now. We've got you know turbos that'll make three thousand horsepower. They don't fall out of boost. They don't surge anything. So sure, pretty good stuff. Yeah. Okay. I, I guess the other thing, without going too deep down that rabbit hole as well, is the uh, the shift from the stock location turbocharger, which really obviously limits what size you can fit in there to now obviously all of the, the big players with the R35 are all running the front mount for the faster cars. Yep, yep, for sure. Okay, um, what do you sort of see if you looked into your crystal ball? You know, what what can we expect with that R thirty five platform? Do you do you see it just continuing to go faster? Is there going to be some sort of? Uh, are we getting into that area of diminishing returns? Oh, uh, we we're we're past that area. <laughs> okay, but, <laughs> but you know, we have one of the one of the best engines out there as far as sport compact stuff goes, and what you're going to start seeing more of is this engine in a more proper lighter race car chassis with a transmission better suited to what we're doing which and is exactly what you've built for yourself yep <laughs> is it at the track yet no it's not so um it was at the chassis shop for about a year and then when it came back we were all busy and we sent another car over for more or less the same build so it's full tube chassis car mine is still independent rear suspension and the drive line's a little bit different so mine's got a, a torque converter and a quick drive and a seven speed liberty gearbox mm-hmm. and then this other one that we sent over there is a four link with a big tire and a th400 okay so when that car came back we started working on it because he's a paying customer and i'm not <laughs> <laughs> so uh that car just got wrapped up before the um hail mary derby derby this past summer so we went out there uh with a car completely new to me and everybody on my team i've never raced a rear wheel drive car i've never worked with an automatic transmission yeah um so we went out there with a couple thousand horsepower and let's just you know let's see how this goes and the driver of the car also has no experience in anything like this so it was a bunch of a bunch of new stuff but it worked out well on the third pass the car went 695 Oh. And it ran uh, three six eighties after that, and we got the gear ratio a little bit wrong, so the car went in sixty foot super well. It was going one twenty two sixty foot, which for a GTR is pretty good, but for that car, not, it's not, not for a rear wheel drive drag chassis. Yeah, so uh, we just made some changes, and we'll be back out with that at World Cup Finals in uh, in Maryland in okay. November. Yeah, yeah. yeah if it's uh, already doing 680s then yeah that uh, that could be pretty exciting once you get it dialed in so we'll look forward to seeing how that comes out um now if we could look back in time and given your wealth of experience at this point everything you've learned along the way is there any advice you would give to a younger version of yourself looking to progress you know along a similar path uh, i think like we touched on earlier the biggest thing that that i've i think was a big part of my success and i've seen seen it in a lot of other places too is that you know don't take on more than you can handle and start small and grow as you're able to to support that growth Mm. so there's you know somebody young that's getting into it that doesn't have a lot of money to start kind of doesn't have a choice but you know don't don't finance a bunch of equipment that you don't need and you know 
uh, I, I I don't think I've ever financed anything that we have here at the shop. I've I've bought it when I've been able to buy it. Yeah, and that seems to have worked well. But um, <clears throat> it's going to be hard, and you're going to have to. I, I think for me, if I still had a job and I was kind of trying to do this on the side, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have amounted to anything. It would have yeah, always think, been a side gig. I think that really comes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, it, it's not something that you can half-ass. If, if you want to be successful in this industry, it requires commitment and uh, yeah. it requires a huge drive, particularly for you know, maybe the first five-plus years while you're, you're getting established. And the other thing, which sort of comes back to, to what you mentioned as well, I, I think people... Uh, maybe don't understand how important reputation is in the industry and, and yeah. that issue that so many shops get into of, of over-promising and under-delivering uh, is a really quick way to destroy that reputation and uh, that's really all you've got going for you when you're trying to attract more customers. Yeah, for sure. And I was listening to uh, your interview with Shane and something came up there and it, it needs to be said again. Know when to say no. <laughs> Absolutely. That's something that I've, you know, only learned more and more over the years. And, um, man, I've been a part of plenty of things that I wish I hadn't. Yeah. And, um, you know, as, as you do it more and more, you can pick those things out quicker. But um, you don't have to take every, every job and don't, under, don't sell yourself short. I think there's a there's a lot to be gained from the jobs that you turn away and that can be a bit of pill to swallow at the time particularly when you're trying to put food on the table and pay rent but um, yeah some of those problematic jobs are yeah the the heartache that you'll save yourself is is just going to pay dividends uh, time and time again but uh, can be hard in the moment to to know when to say no. <laughs> Yep. All right, last question for today. Tony, if people want to follow you or see what you're up to, uh, where are you on social media? How can they check you out? We are on Instagram and we are on Facebook. Uh, Instagram is T1 Race. Facebook's T1 Race Development. And um, we are not on TikTok or Snapchat or any of that cheesy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Just the legit channels. I get it. Yeah. All right, Tony, look, really appreciate your time today. It's been a really interesting insight into that R35 platform. And uh, we look forward to seeing in uh, particular how your uh, rear wheel drive chassis goes at World Cup finals. Yep. Yeah, it's been good talking to you. Hopefully I'll see you again someday. Uh, if this COVID thing ever blows over, we look forward to getting back to the US. All right. <laughs> thanks a lot, Tony. All right, that concludes our interview. And before we sign off, I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialize in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember, you've got that coupon code. You can use podcast75 at the checkout to get 75 dollars off the purchase of your first course you'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses important to mention that when you purchase a course from us that course is yours for life as well it never expires you can rewatch the course as many times as you like whenever you like the purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership that gives you access to our private members only forum 
which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute gold mine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.